Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and today's guest is Gail Simmons, who most people know as a judge on Top Chef, which is now entering its 14th season. In addition to that, Gail is an author and food writer as well. I really enjoyed my conversation that I had with Gail, but before we get into it, I'd like to thank Zola for sponsoring this week's episode. Zola combines gifts, experiences, and funds into one beautiful, easy-to-use wedding registry. Visit Zola.com slash promotion slash manrepeller to learn more about why Zola is the fastest-growing wedding registry going today. All right, let's get into it. You can live right in the center of the city yeah. and you feel like you're in the suburbs and it's like safety and you walk and you can like live in a big single dwelling home, right. but you're right in the center of the city and like you're in a safe community. And I, my, I guess one of my favorite things is probably like about how like it's like almost all small businesses too. Well, you, mm, I don't know. Less so than it used to be. I could have. Okay. But yeah. no, I mean, there's big... It's just I think Canada isn't as super super molly like yeah. big box as America is. Yeah, but I but mean, Toronto is, if anything, more than any other city in America in Canada. A lot, but I guess that neighborhood has a lot of. But Young, like the corner of Young and Eglinton, is now pretty like. Well, when we go, we commercial. we when we go, we have to stay at this. You know, we stay in the neighborhood that's like a block from my favorite dumpling spot. Right. So, oh, that's good. So, like over in um, Kensington Market right. area. Oh, well, that area, sure. Yeah. But that's like saying the East Village. You know, it's like the East Village. Yeah. I was, uh, I was reading your book, and like the one thing that stuck out to me the most. Did was you get it, by the way? I know I there did. was like a problem. Yeah, no, I got it. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I got worried. I got sent through. I place. read it over the weekend. It was beautiful oh, weather out. Yeah. You know, I just sat in the park and. Love that. Yeah, it was great. Perfect. But one of the funniest things was uh, you write so much about like visa issues, and I don't yeah. think non Canadians understand. My mother, though, was like appalled, of course, because I came here and I married another Canadian. Right. And she was like, Jesus, at least fake marry an American. Right. But anyway. They ask you like pretty invasive questions. My friend did that. Well, and more so even when you actually go get the visa, you're going to see they're going to like separate you and, you know, you're going to need to prove all sorts of things. Oh, no, no, I know. Like my deep fr- love for each other. My friend, she had to, like, she was <clears throat> asked like, because she married a guy like so he could get his visa. And she they asked him like, so like, what's your guy's favorite position yeah, in oh. bed? And I was like, what? They asked that? That's that's crazy. Inappropriate. I know. But, you know. That's how they get you. I guess, yeah. <laughs> so so you grew up in Toronto. How did growing up in Toronto kind of shape who you are? Hmm. Toronto was an amazing place to grow up. Toronto is a sort of all the best things of urban life, but in a super safe and very community-oriented existence, at least the, the Toronto that I knew mm-hmm. uh, growing up. I grew up in the center of the city, um, you know, 10 minutes from way downtown, but in a community where I could ride my bike to school every single day or right. walk to school every single day, and all my friends lived within a 10-block radius of my house, Yeah, and I could walk to the pizza place for lunch or the falafel place for lunch. Yeah. And all the important boxes yeah, seem I mean, to be checked off. That was right it. Now. Yeah. There's a lot of great old like rep theaters yeah. in Toronto. And so important. Um, there's a big movie culture, there's a big music culture. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a huge food culture. It has an amazing diversity of 
immigrant communities that really shape the city. Um, and in sort of a different way than New York, moving to New York, obviously New York is a super multicultural city. Right. But Toronto has these villages that people say that it's more of a melting, well, people say that it's more of a mosaic than mm-hmm. a melting pot mm-hmm. because everyone sort of lives in these little pieces, but it's very fluid. You know, I, I spent my childhood going to Little India, going to um, the Portuguese area, yeah, the Greek yeah. neighborhoods, um, the Chinese neighborhoods, the, you know. So it was definitely part of of growing up. Yeah. And uh, Kensington Market, which is the big kind of ethnic market area, it is. It's an amazing corner of old Toronto. And it started out as the old Jewish quarter, sort of like the Lower East Side. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, There's a lot that. of old like tenement Jewish buildings and, and synagogues. And then it was taken over... Um, by ethnic communities, it was it's the site of the first Chinatown. Toronto has such a massive Chinese population that it actually has three Chinatowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, each one of them is easily ten times the size of the Chinatown here in oh, Manhattan, yeah. and so it is sort of like the Lower East Side Kensington in that it's sort of layer on top of layer yeah. of different immigrant communities that have moved in over the years. So it was. Jewish and and sort of Eastern European, and then it became Chinese, and then it became a little bit South American. Um, although Canada doesn't have the same South American community that the states does, but it has a big they, like island, like Caribbean it has population, a huge Caribbean like, population. Every time I go to Kensington Market, that patty spot, yeah, the just patties. Every time I walk by, just oh, maybe let's get another one. Totally, you know? it has a huge Haitian <laughs> and and Trinidadian community, Caribbean community, Jamaican community. I grew up the the a school that I went to for a short time. Was, a, was in the center of a really amazing Caribbean community, and I would go for patties every day on my walk home yeah. from school. So, um, so yeah, it's true. It's, it, was a, it was a great place to grow up um, with a real sense of freedom, and um, and I, I don't know. I, I love Canada. I still do. I miss a lot of things about living in Canada. Yeah. Not enough to go back and live there, I guess. And your family's still there? My whole part? family's yeah. there. My brothers, my parents. I married a Canadian, mm-hmm. so that has sort of kept me and my roots in Canada a little bit. Well, it's kind of funny. When I was reading your book, um, when you talk about how your parents met, it was just kind of like, um, oh, you're Jewish? Oh, I think I might know somebody else who's Jewish. You guys should meet. And then they just, like, it was that simple. (laughs) Well, those are the good old days. Right? Uh, Yeah, that was pretty much how it went down um, (laughs) with my parents in the 60s. Also because that was before Toronto has always had a know sizable jewish community right because there was a lot of immigration it was like ellis island in, in montreal right there was right and montreal's port the saint lawrence river yeah. and, you know montreal was the port and that's so so montreal originally before and during and after world war ii was the port through which everybody came to canada so if you went to new york through ellis island you went to montreal through the saint lawrence river and there most of the big jewish population was known for being in montreal yeah it's since changed because of the French political um, climate there. A lot of the Jewish population and Anglophone population in general, but Jewish population left Montreal, and now the population of Toronto in terms of the Jewish community is much, much bigger. Mm. That's not just because Toronto is just a much bigger city. People right. don't realize Toronto is the fourth the fourth biggest city in North America. Yeah. After Mexico City, New York, and L.A. Yeah. Toronto. Wow. By the way, the sign of someone who's really from Toronto, uh-huh. they never say Toronto. What do they say? Toronto. Toronto. The T, the last T is silent. 
<laughs> no one from Toronto says Toronto. Yeah. So when I am talking to people not from Toronto, I end up hearing myself say Toronto, and it sounds very strange. Well, I get crap for saying Montreal. Because I say Montreal. Uh, I don't know if I say Montreal. I say Montreal. Mon- Montreal. It's like an M-U-N, Mon, Montreal. There's a big part of my family that, like, you know, grew up in Montreal. Like oh. My, my, uh, my uh, great-grandparents owned, like, a candy shop. In, oh, like, cool. In, like, the Mile End area. And, Amazing. Like, my dad went up there all the, every summer. And right. Just, I've heard stories about it all the time. It sounds like... I bet I'm so excited my, to, my like... Husband's grandparents, because they also they ran a wholesale business selling to candy shops. Oh, and, they definitely and did. Depanners, which is the French word for the bodega. Yeah, they most definitely knew each other then. <laughs> yeah, it's a small community. <laughs> I know. Um, so, what kind of kid were you growing up? How were you spending your time? Um, I was a good kid. I was good at school. I liked school. I had two older brothers. Yeah. Who were significantly older than me, so much so that we didn't have much to fight about. So they were really my protectors and my best friends, and they're five and almost seven, six years older than me. And so I followed them around a lot, listened to their music, played their sports. My brothers were hockey players. Really, all Canadian boys are hockey players. Mm -hmm. That's a gross exaggeration. No, no, I remember. But usually it's true. One of my first book reports was on Wayne Gretzky. I remember his mom buying like the, she would buy like a sprinkler every winter so they could make a rink in the backyard. in the backyard. That's how it's done. Yeah. Um, So he's the great one. Yeah. We all appreciate (laughs) Wayne Gretzky. My brothers were big hockey players in in the winter and rowers in the summer and tennis players and canoers and really outdoorsy mm-hmm. and both very active in sort of different ways. So I followed them around and I played a lot of sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I got into my You weren't getting into tweens, trouble at all? Like, um, how would you like rebel? Like, what was your version of like rebelling or being a bad kid? My rebelling in the te- in my teens, I think, became the my boyfriends. Mm-hmm. The boyfriends <laughs> that I brought home yeah. that my parents and my brothers probably didn't love so much. They were all musicians. Not all, but... Several of them were musicians. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know. We got up to a, a little bit of no good, but yeah. not that much. Like I was always really I was always really cautious in my no gooding. Mm-hmm. One of my brothers was particularly rebellious. And so in retrospect, my mother has since told me that she was so preoccupied with his, the trouble that he was getting into and the police showing up at our doorstep for his issues at uh, three okay. in the morning yeah. that she felt like she neglected us my other sibling and I, my other brother and I. So I think in a way there was a pressure on me inadvertently to be good, to be the good one, hmm. because we needed to keep out of trouble because one of my brothers was always getting into so much trouble. Right. And, and both of your brothers were adopted. Both my brothers were adopted. And, and what was that like? Because I, I also ask because I'm also adopted. Mm, cool. But an only child. Right. But my best friend, Kyle, his older brother was adopted and he's like years biological. after. Yeah, biological. It's like such an interesting concept. It is an interesting dynamic and it's um I don't know anything else. They're my brothers. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't matter to me any other way. They're the only brothers I know and I can think of them as my brothers. But what is interesting is thinking about how we view the world differently because of that situation. Mm-hmm. My mother and father were told they couldn't conceive and this was, you know, long before the fertility technology that we have today, but it was also a time when you could adopt far more easily. Right. And so both of my brothers were adopted, and that was their family. And my mother was sort of fine with the fact that. Did they, you always grow up knowing that they were adopted? Always, like always. It was, yeah. Oh, it was never a secret. There was never like um, the thing like where, hey guys, I gotta. 
We got to sit you yeah. down. No, yeah. from as far as I can remember, Rack. Same we thing knew for me. That we and were I, just, do- and my I don't know how they did it. I have like no idea. I remember once how my to parents, start that. How they just taught you that? In yeah, a- I remember my parents like reading me a book when I was really young about like, oh, you're adopted and like we chose you and all this kind of stuff. Maybe to like get me ready for right. the concept or something. But uh, yeah, it was just always known. I'd have to ask my Such brothers. Such a mystery. I'd have to ask my brothers how they or when they first kind of realized or understood that they were adopted. Mm-hmm. But by the time I came around, which is why I'm so many years younger than them, right. um, my my parents got pregnant very much by accident. We say in our family, we're three mistakes, mm-hmm. but we're three miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, because all three of us weren't supposed to happen. Uh, my brother's... <laughs> biological yeah. parents were teenagers and they were given up for adopted adoption and then my parents conceived me you know years later many years after my mother had f- even forgotten about the chance that that was even a possibility right. um and so she was a little bit older when she had me older for the 70s yeah and i just that was how my family dynamic always was it was just open and it didn't matter we were all loved and we were all cared for and we were this I don't know, sort of circus of children. <laughs> no, it's cool because like, you know, and also, you know, like, you know, reading your book, like, you, you know, talking about your parents and kind of, um, you know, it seems like they had like a really beautiful relationship. And hmm. I guess. Well, I just well, laugh <laughs> when you think of how that relationship changes after 50 years of marriage. <laughs> they would, I'm sure, be shocked and flattered to hear you say that. Well, I mean, they're still together. They are. You know, so like that in itself. Is That's true. A it's a triumph. Thing, you know, yep. seriously. Yeah, you're right. And, um, you know, I just, I'm always interested, you know, because my parents are still together. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in like, you know, how do you think your parents' relationship, you know, sculpted your view of what it meant to ha- have a partner in that way? My parents were a really good match in a lot of ways. A lot of my friends and their friends will tell you when you meet them, they seem like polar opposites, Mm -hmm. my parents. Mm -hmm. A little bit less now because I think they've both mellowed and changed a little bit in their older years. But especially growing up, my mother was loud and gregarious and ruled the house Mm -hmm. and was known in the neighborhood from her booming voice and she was very outspoken and very much in charge and... My father was very well-mannered and polite, and he was quiet and much more introverted. But they were both real self-starters. I realize now they were both true entrepreneurs. Mm. And I think that, regardless of their marriage, I think the way they both led by example really influenced me in in different ways. They were both world travelers. They took us on their adventures with them from as far back as I can remember. They both viewed the world... um, very openly, they were both very liberal, but not in a hippie dippy sense. Uh-huh. Uh, just in a we are Canadian, like, yeah. so we're liberal <laughs> yeah. sense um, compared to everyone else. It's a good. It's <clears throat> a good thing to be for sure, for sure. But it also, I mean, liberal in the way that they encouraged us yeah. to be creative, to be in the arts, to explore our strengths, and to get out into the world and try things, even if that meant we might fail. And to support us through our failures, they never put pressure on us to be certain things that we didn't necessarily right, want to be, right. to fit into molds. Um, because neither of them sort of fit into molds. My mother uh, always worked at very creative endeavors. And, you know, my mother in the 50s and then 60s 
you know, after she graduated college, she went off to Europe. She did a master's degree in Europe uh, in international politics in her 20s and then lived in Europe and lived in Israel and then moved to New York and worked for the UN when most of, if not all of her friends were getting married and having children. Right. She was the last one to do that, which at the time was very unconventional. Yeah. And Still, even some people sure. give a side eye to that. For you sure. Know? And and only settled into her marriage and met my father and, and got married when she had had time to do all these other things that she wanted to do with yeah. her life. And um, it's funny because looking looking at it now, I remember when I was in my teens and 20s thinking, I want to have children younger than my mother and I want to be a younger mom because she was always an older mom to yeah. me yeah. than all of my friends' mothers. And I didn't like that. And I was a little bit embarrassed of it, or I just felt like there was such an age gap between us. Mm. My parents didn't know about popular, the same popular culture or the music that we were into or those yeah, sort of things. You're supposed to know about that, though. You're right, but so many like... of my friends' parents were, were cool yeah. in that way. Yeah. And so, but looking back, so I felt that when I was a teen and into my 20s that I didn't want to do that. Mm. But of course, whether or not it was fate <laughs> or what it was, yeah. I certainly did the exact same thing. I traveled, I followed my dreams, I built my career, I worked for many years. Even though I was with my boyfriend who became my husband for many, many years, we never settled down and got married and decided to have children until late into our 30s, um, at which time I actually had my first child at the exact same age <laughs> that my mother had me yeah. at. So you were so able to escape. <laughs> I wasn't able to escape, but now I sort of understand why it was so great to be a little bit of an older mom. Yeah. And these days, I'm not even that old. No, to be a mom. no, no, no. Um, so, you know, to go back a little bit, you were talking about like your, your, you know, your teens. What was your awkward time like? Ooh, bad how hair. Would you how would you define it? Bad hair. You know, I think middle school is the worst for anyone. <laughs> I, I, I can't really think of a single good middle school yearbook picture that is in existence. Right, right. For anyone. For anyone yeah. ever. <laughs> Possibly Tom Selleck might have had a nice middle school picture. Maybe. I don't know. Hard to say. Um, Everybody's just weirdly <laughs> growing. Right. I had like a tiny head and my ears stuck out. Like, That's right. You know, everybody call me Dumbo. Oh. You know? Sure. Yeah. I do. But my head grew out, you know? I cut bangs in seventh grade and then grew them out in eighth grade. So there was a poofy hair, hairspray, which caused lots of zits on my forehead yeah. stage. Yeah. In eighth grade, that was rough. A lot of, is, is there, you know, like a, you know, did you play into the Canadian kind of um, stereotype, a lot of denim? Were you wearing a lot of denim? A lot of denim. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of acid wash specifically yeah. in middle school. The cooler of the denim. Yes. Uh, there were also a lot of scrunchies. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I would like to think I was less awkward than some. Yeah. But there was a lot of bad dance moves. I, I When I... Got into my teens, I started dancing, um, not just like spontaneously, hip, like, <laughs> not hip hop, ballet, like, yeah, uh, okay. you know, classical dance, yeah. uh, ballet, modern dance, tap. You started when you were in your I teens? I started earlier, oh, okay, but okay. I was still doing kind of sports and started taking it more seriously right. into my teens. I took ballet all through till the end of high school, actually. Mm -hmm. And so um, that kept me very active and and with good posture and yeah. strength. Yeah. So um, I was a little bit lanky, but then towards the end of my teens, I grew boobs. Oh, okay. And then that all became awkward and the ballet fell to the wall. My dreams like, of being a ballerina were dashed. Yeah. And Was that something you seriously wanted to pursue? For not really. 
Okay. Not really, but, but that door that 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 path. It was, was officially yeah. closed. Okay. Um. And what was the path you wanted to go down? I don't think I ever at that stage had a had a true path. I liked all sorts of things. I mean, I was too young. I never really had a vision of what I wanted to be when I grew up mm-hmm. until I got to college. And even then I was totally wrong. But so you just went to college being like, I'll figure it out while I'm here. Yes. Yeah. There, I had a lot of interests. I was always a very active kid. I was always doing 50 different extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. But I was sort of the jack of all trades, master of none. Uh-huh. I did a lot of dance, a lot of theater. Yeah. Um, I was a canoe instructor. I was a ski instructor. I loved writing. I went through a phase in high school where I wrote a lot of poetry. You know, mm-hmm. my dark, profound yes. um, have you ever, have you, stage. Do you still have it? Have oh, I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, I do have it. Yeah. Some of it's not bad. You Some should of it's read real it out. bad. Uh, one of the funniest things I ever saw, you know Michael Showalter? Uh, the comedian? Yes, of course. Yeah. So I, one of the funniest things I ever saw was he read this like story that he wrote for his high school dramatic, uh, their like dramatic magazine from his high school. It was the, one of the most f- amazing. amazing things. Yeah. I bet. You got to get it out there. I should, I, I know where it is. It's in the yeah. second drawer of my desk in my parents' house in my old bedroom. And I, I know the poetry. I mean, I still know some of it by heart yeah. because I read it so many times and the story, like my, my short fiction which was short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I loved writing. I always loved writing, and I loved theater, and I loved the arts in that way, creative arts. Mm-hmm. And although never visual arts, I was never good with pen and paper or marker. Mm-hmm. Um, although, interestingly, food has such a distinct visual element, and somehow I get that. Mm. But that, I think, came with a little bit more training down the line. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's really interesting. I watched like that um, the chef's table, the one with um, there was that Italian chef and like Massimo Batura. Yes, great, awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember like in the, there was a part in the show where he's like his wife took him to the museums to see like uh, Gerhard Richter paintings and stuff, and he was like, oh, I, and that like totally influenced his way of sure. plating, uh, plating food and stuff. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, anyway, getting off track here. Um, so you're so you're in school. So what what are you doing there when you're trying to figure it at out? college? Yeah. Uh, besides smoking a lot of weed. Yeah. Um, and you were in Mon- uh, Montreal. Montreal. Yeah. I went to McGill University. So I'm just joking, mom. I did not smoke a lot of weed. So you're hanging out in like Mount Royal Park. Hanging were out. Were they LARPing at that time in Mount Royal Park? I'm not quite sure I'm familiar with that term. LARPing is live action role playing. You know, oh, where the guys oh. dress up and like battle I, with oh, swords Oh yes, and no, stuff. I was not partaking in the LARPing. But did the, was it still I don't happening? know. I wasn't paying attention And they to also the have LARPing. that big drum circle We did there. a lot of drum circles on yeah. Sundays for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The residence for the first year students at McGill is at the top of the mountain. So you're literally overlooking. Oh, wow. You're on Mount Royal overlooking the drum circle. So that was a short walk (laughs) every Sunday to Mount Royal Park. And um, I did a lot of eating out in great cheap restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, I still did a lot of, you know, freezing, cold outdoor activity, um, like skiing and things like that. what did I do in college? Like, I don't what, know. I can't remember. Like, what I were was you a thinking? burnout. Like what was <laughs> um, <laughs> So like what so like when like it's getting towards the end of it where you're oh, like, I'll oh, what am I, I gonna thinking. do? Like what what am I gonna go? What's I what's was, the plan here? I was petrified because I had no plan. <laughs> yeah. I was the only girl I felt in my group of girlfriends who didn't have a plan. All of my girlfriends towards the fourth year of university just so casually fell into what they were gonna do for their careers. Yeah. As if it was no big thing. They were like, yeah, I'm going to be a lawyer, obviously. I'm going to go to um, do a master's in art history, or I'm going to go to med school, or I'm going to go to dentistry, or I'm going to become a veterinarian, or 
I'm going to, and they all had these super professional tracks and, and graduate school. It? Well, they all, most of them went to graduate school. Yes. Oh, okay. I had very brilliant friends. Still do. They're still, they're still my friends. A yeah. lot of overachieving women that I grew up with and I'm very proud of them all. Oh, I don't know. I don't mean overachiever in a bad way. No, I mean oh. it in a great way. Yeah. I'm for not, sure. Yeah. Uh, they were all very driven, very hardworking young women. And we were, we were all very geared in our tracks to go on to graduate school and become professionals and seek graduate education mm-hmm. uh, or they all were except me literally me and maybe two other of my girlfriends um everyone seemed to just so easily know exactly what they wanted to do and all i knew was what i didn't want to do which was i didn't want to go to law school partially because i just didn't want to write my lsats and i i just i i didn't like those ideas none of them interested me and i i really remember that last year of college feeling like i had done a degree in anthropology and spanish language which i found very interesting and I went to Spain and lived in Spain for I a know, year. That sounds amazing. And I I felt like I had learned a lot in college about how to think and how to write and how to be analytical and but I had absolutely no <laughs> idea yeah. how to put any of those to work in a practical setting. Yeah. And I didn't understand how all my friends knew just where to go but me. Right. Well, that's a good... Th- well, see, that's the thing. Whenever people are like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. I'm like, well, figure out what you don't want to do. Right. You know? That's yeah. the best way to... Totally. If- and still, that's still how I figure out anything. Yeah. I knew I wanted to write. I had loved to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been drawn to food. In, in college, I started writing restaurant reviews for the college student newspaper. They were very lo-fi but I mean, yeah like i mean had you was this the first time you had written restaurant reviews were yeah. you just kind of like reading other ones and just totally. kind of like i was like, reading oh, so food magazines yeah, i was yeah. reading food and wine magazine i was yeah. reading gourmet magazine drooling over the food images and recipes i was doing a lot of cooking for myself my mother was a great cook and she sent me her recipes and i would call her for recipes and i had an aunt who lived in montreal and i went to her house every friday night mm-hmm. for for dinner and she taught me a lot about food and so i i had a strong maternal cooking influence and also because you're in college and don't have a lot of money and just need to be thrifty and yeah. I started cooking um, quite a bit you know in my apartment yeah and love to write and love to cook and love to eat out so I had been doing this sort of haphazard writing restaurant reviews that were really low budget <laughs> for my student paper and I graduated college and moved back home and had no idea how to get a job or what to do and I went and moved into my parents basement and mm-hmm. just felt sorry for myself and my mother was starting to panic because she thought I'd never amount to anything, I guess. And she set me up with her very close friend's daughter, who was about 10 years older than me. And she had become a television producer and she was in development for a, a network, a television network. In Canada. In Canada. Cool. And went on to actually work for the Food Network yeah. in Canada, but this was before that. And she sat me down and said, well, what do you want to do? Just make a list of things that you like to do. Yeah. Like, stop thinking about them as professions. You don't need to know that you want to be a lawyer or a dentist. Just write down things you actually like. There must be something you actually enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. What do you do with your time? And I wrote down, eat, write, travel, cook. And she was like, I don't know what your problem is. Your yeah. mom's, everyone's freaking out over nothing. Yeah. Go do it. There it is. There's your job description right there. And that's like the Jewish mom she was thing right. to do. She yeah. just cares about you. She yeah. just wants you to get it together. Exactly. Of course. All, you know. Everyone was worried. Everyone just yeah. wanted me to have a direction and uh-huh. I felt directionless. And I found that these four words really did guide me and gave me the um empowerment to to take the next step and do them. And I realized if I can do it, maybe maybe I I mean I'm young enough and I don't 
need to make a ton of money yet. Maybe I can at least give it a shot before I have to actually take on any sort of responsibility other than myself. So I did. And I went to work at that point for a year. I stayed in Canada and I worked. I got an internship at a newspaper. I got an internship first at a magazine, at the Mm. City Magazine, Toronto Life Magazine, an award-winning, excellent magazine. And then at a huge national newspaper that launched in Canada at the time that's still around, the National Post. And in both places I was working for sections that allowed me to spend a lot of time with the food editor. And I was just drawn was again and again. Was that like No. Your, no, it just so, just so happened. just happened that oh, way. Wow. That was where my interest was. I was interested in lifestyle and travel and, and, I, and food. And little by little, I edged my way in with the food editor at both places. And they let me follow them around. And eventually, mm-hmm. they both let me write freelance. Mm-hmm. And I wrote more and more. And then finally, I realized this is it. I, I'm right. This eat, write, travel, cook thing could be a real gig. Yeah. Except in Canada... It's a very small field. Most of the media that we consume in Canada, certainly consumed, but still consume, is American media. Mm-hmm. And so most of the big publications, especially food publications, were all out of the States. And it was very hard to find a full-time gig as a food writer. And I didn't want to be freelancing at that age. I wanted to be working full-time where I could learn from people and not be sort of on my own. So I asked advice of my food editor what I should do how do I become a real food writer mm-hmm. and he said well here's something if you really want to write about food you actually have to learn about food right because PS you don't actually know anything about food <laughs> yeah just and this was the early days of the internet right what was that like getting that knowledge you know later it was eye-opening yeah it was <laughs> eye-opening. It was kind of funny. And still to this day, I say it to young people all the time who seek my advice. Yeah. I want to be a food writer. I want to be, I have a food blog. I want to be a food writer. Well, do you know anything about food? Do right. you do you cook? Right. And not just kind of in your house or do you, besides going out to restaurants and taking pictures of what you're eating, do you know the language of the kitchen? Do you know right. how to cook? The foundations of cooking. And I'm not saying that everyone has to follow my path by any means. Right. Uh, but my path was to learn how to cook, I need to take a really big step and differentiate myself and and so that for me meant quitting my job, yeah. moving to New York City and enrolling in professional culinary school. I just dove in because I kind of had an inkling I wanted to go to culinary school and I knew I wanted to live in New York. Yeah. I'd been to New York many times and, you know, the energy was so palpable yeah. and the food scene was so mind-blowing to me and I just wanted to get in it and here was my way. And was it everything that you were, were hoping it was going to be? It was. Yeah. That first year and a half when I was in culinary school and then working as a line cook, I lived basically in my friend's closet yeah. in Murray Hill. He let me pay him $500 a month and he had this tiny spare bedroom that I can't even think is really legally considered a bedroom. Yeah, I mean, that happens was, a lot here Yeah, though. New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And he let me live there and help with the bills. And he was a banker, so he made a lot more money than me. Mm-hmm. And I, I was supposed to stay for six months, and I stayed for a year and a half. And he was amazing. And he was one of my old friends anyway. And we were great roommates together and had so much fun. And I was at food camp every day. Yeah. You know, nine to five, five days a week. And then I learned to cook and went into kitchen. This week, we are super stoked to have Zola as our sponsor. My fiance just informed me that we are users of their services, which is pretty exciting information for me to just find out. The great thing about Zola is how easy it is to combine gifts, experiences, and funds from all over in one easy-to-use site. You can register for well-known brands like KitchenAid and Sonos, as well as up-and-coming brands like Parachute, or experiences like Cooking with Blue Apron. 
Plus, if you're in New York, you can visit the Zola Townhouse for home inspiration and registry guidance, which is great for people like me who enjoy human interaction, especially for things like this. Visit Zola.com slash promotion slash man repeller to learn more about Zola and how it can help make your registry experience stress-free, especially since if you're planning a wedding, there are a million other things that you have to worry about, like napkin rings and what hotel grandma is staying in. Okay, let's get back to the show. So when you were working in kitchens, did did you have maybe a different attitude towards it than some of the other people in there? Because for you, maybe you knew it was temporary rather than being like this Sisyphean task where like... You know, some people that are like lifers that are just like, this is what it's going to be every day. I, I did. I absolutely did. I never went into kitchens knew, knowing I wanted to cook yeah. professionally full time. I never wanted to be a chef. Mm-hmm. Um, that was never my dream. But my dream was to get practical experience. Again, I had gone through school and you go through culinary school, you do everything once. You learn all the terms, you get tested, you take writing and cooking exams, but you come out with a great theoretical knowledge of food. Right. And... It very much like going to medical school. This was my graduate school moment. Right, right. And still, you go to medical school or you go to law school, you you don't the next day perform open heart surgery. Right. You need to then get some practical experience. So my culinary school convinced me to go cook on the line for a little while and, and solidify that experience, which is mm-hmm. what I did. And I went in knowing that it was going to be temporary. I stayed longer than I thought I would. But it was invaluable in that it was like the biggest ass whooping of my life and rightfully so. That a kitchen is a really difficult place for twenty two thousand reasons. Yeah. Um. And I was the only woman in both kitchens that I cooked in. I think if I had done it now, almost twenty years later, it would be a slightly different situation, but not that different. How did that aspect feel for you? Being like I the first only woman? went in sort of guns a blazing, like mm-hmm. I can do this. I can be the woman who's gonna kick ass and take names, and I'm. You know, I'm strong and my mom taught me to be a strong woman and I'm going to conquer this and I don't know why it's so difficult. And I was humbled, not just as a woman, but as a cook. Yeah. I mean, you're humbled when you're an apprentice cook. Right. There, there's a very strict structure to a kitchen, a brigade. A brigade. It's modeled after the army, for God's sakes. <laughs> and the positions of a kitchen are very hierarchical for reason. There's a system to making service work in a kitchen right. or else it's just mass chaos every night. Without order. Without order. Yeah. You need order. Yeah. So, you know, my position was the lowest rung on the ladder and you are humbled because you are standing in one spot for eight hours, 10 hours a day, peeling carrots, making crepe batter. Um, one of my first jobs was to make crepe batter and then make, you know, hundreds of crepes every, yeah. every day. And so I was standing with this tiny little crepe pan over a stove for hours a day, my face would be flush red. Yeah. The good point was my face was so red and so sweaty that no one could tell if I was crying or not. <laughs> um, because I was over the no, stove all day crying. and half the just, time I was I mean, crying. I'm, no, I'm fine. Exactly. I'm fine. No, everything's good. Um, exactly. <laughs> well, that was pretty much me. It's funny though that you used to make that army um, uh, reference because the like the best producer I've ever worked with, you know, he had this one maxim. He was like, look, man, he's like the army marches on its belly. You keep them like happy, like with their stomachs, and like people will go wherever you need right. them to go. Do what you need them it's to true. do. It's true. It's true. There was a great energy to the kitchens I worked in, and I worked in really exceptional kitchens, interesting places, because there is this idea of being in the trenches together yeah, right. and that adrenaline of service and how horrible it feels when it goes wrong, but how incredible it is when it goes right mm-hmm. and you're working as one entity, sort of breathing together. Yeah. And you really thrive on that adrenaline. And that's, I think, why cooks 
get lost in the mess of the kitchen um, and and how easy it is to get sucked into that culture and why that culture is so specific. You yeah. know, it's it's a real team mentality. And I loved it for those reasons. And I learned so much and I learned speed and I learned precision and I learned sense of urgency um, and I hurt myself and that was, was a lesson every time. You know, mm-hmm. I sliced my hands open and I sliced my fingernails off and I burned my fingers and my arms. Uh, but, and I don't mean, I mean, that's also why there's this machoism to a kitchen. Right. There's this like, rawr, this jocular, you know, like, cut your yeah, hand like, and just sear it on the yeah. flat top just to seal it. Just get back to it, yeah. it, yeah. It's terrible. And there's a lot about that that is total crap and ridiculous. And yeah. kitchens do not have to work like prisons yeah. um, in that mentality. <laughs> but at the same time, there is this fortitude, this feeling of just getting it done by any means necessary that I think you do learn. And I'm really grateful that I had that time. And I think it really proved to help me because ultimately my goal was just to speak that language, to be fluent in the kitchen um, so that chefs would trust me and I yeah. could write about them with authority. What, one of the things I loved in, in reading the book was um, it seems like, you know, your your path has been this like mix of hard work and perfect timing yes. with a lot of things. Yes. Do you ever think about that? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Um, I've had so many moments where you don't see it when you're in it. And then looking back, I was like, wow, how did that never happened if I hadn't have been right there, right then. And I think a lot of it is making mistakes because you don't notice that they're massive mistakes, but every, every experience takes you in one direction or another. It's like that sliding door Mm -hmm. mentality that if I had done it any other way, I wouldn't have had the outcome that had brought, that brought me to this moment. Mm -hmm. And there were so many moments where I was in the right time and right place. Yeah. And I say in my book, I say it all the time to myself, I say it in my work, that the harder you work, the luckier you are. Right. You know, it's like that old you saying. You just put yourself out there. You that, have to right. be there for those things to happen. You have to be open to it. You have it. to be open to them and yeah. you have to sort of not walk that narrow straight line you have to be very conscious of the doors opening on other sides and be mm-hmm. willing to take a little bit of risk to walk through them i taught a class uh, i teach at babson college um i'm an entrepreneur in residence there and they have a food solutions institute and i teach there a couple times a year and i taught a class this past week uh on the gig economy and sort of mm. this new economy where is not the way our parents grew up where everyone just got a nine to five job no. everyone now is seeking you know the startup mentality of creating your own schedule and life and career plan that is is a real circular narrative or or non-linear narrative and the the these were all MBA students and their questions were all about you seem to be okay you seem to be comfortable taking risks yeah and are you seem so comfortable with all these risks that you took because so many of the things you ended up doing were real risks you know going and working in a kitchen leaving the comforts of home to move to New York and go to right. culinary school or um going on television for the first time on a show that could have failed, things like that. And I answered not because I I knew I was taking risks at the time. I guess I felt supported in doing them because I knew that nothing was written in stone. But I don't think I realized the extent of the risk I was taking Mm. until I was on the other side of it. Well, maybe do you think that like maybe because – you know, like that sense of curiosity for just everything that's around you kind of helped. Because I know there's like a lot of times where someone's like, I want to do this and like this is the path. And then that kind of sometimes closes you off to, you know, navigating in a way where you're leaving yourself open for different possibilities to come up. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I, that I, absolutely makes sense. I think you're totally right. I think I said yes to a lot of things. Yeah. And even things that 
were not on the plan, so to speak. I think I said yes to things because I knew I would learn from them. I had the wherewithal to do that. That I I had this general idea of what I wanted to do on the long term, but I had no idea how to get there on mm-hmm. the short term. And I knew there wasn't a direct path to do that. So I was willing to just do a bunch of things because I knew I would learn from it. Right. And for example, you know, my on at the onset, my original idea is that I wanted to be quote unquote a food writer. Mm-hmm. I had that vague idea on the long term. So I went to culinary school because I need to learn about food. Right. And then I went to work for a food writer. Mm-hmm. And I did all the things that you do assisting a food writer so I could learn to be a food writer, which feels seems very like little. It seems yeah. like there's a lot of things to a do. Lo- a lot of things. Yeah. You know, I was recipe testing and I was learning to edit recipes and learning to write, learning to edit. I was cooking doing a, goose meat. Cooking a lot of geese. <laughs> um, I was doing a lot of research. Yeah. Tireless, tireless research. And um, so that he could have the research he needed to write his stories. And that was really interesting. And I was learning from that. But from there, the job I took after that felt like a huge departure. It was just after 9-11. And I I was working for this food writer, Jeffrey Steingarten at Vogue. And I had worked with him for just exactly two years. And I was starting to get restless. It's Mm -hmm. hard to be someone's assistant uh, in that sort of role. It was a two-year position because we worked alone the two of us, and he was just writing, you know, all yeah. the time. And he was a uh, difficult uh, character, um, admittedly. Mm-hmm. He knew that his assistant sort of last that long. Anyway, I thought I would take it and the next evolution would be just to then go to a food magazine and become an assistant editor and just go right towards my right. path of being a food writer, whatever that meant. And... It was impossible to get a job at the time, especially because I didn't have a visa. I needed someone to sponsor my visa because mm-hmm. I'm Canadian um, to be a f- to to get a job in publishing, and it was a very difficult time in publishing in general. And I was offered a job by instead of all these people, I was offered a job uh, by Chef Danielle Boulou. He had three restaurants in New York at the time. He was writing three different books. He was opening three more restaurants in the next two years. And he needed someone to work under his director of PR and marketing to do all of these things with him. Events, marketing, PR, yeah. restaurant openings. Just be in it with all, of it, with, with all of them. It was a small family team at the time. Since then, his company has grown enormously. But I said yes uh, for a number of reasons. One, he was willing to get me a visa. Right. And that was a big deal. Right. Because they dealt with that. Well, they dealt with that for a lot of like the uh, people working Chefs in the kitchen, working, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's helpful. So he understood what that meant. Yeah, he himself was an immigrant, mm-hmm. French man. So um, I took the job for that reason, but also because I just knew. First of all, it's Danielle Ballou. He's one of the greatest chefs of our time. He's a genius. He's brilliant. He's kind. People loved working for him. And I just knew I would learn. Yeah. And I had no idea where it would lead me and what my next move would be. But I also knew I'd be working with people, which really excited me because I had been in a kitchen for so long and then working for Jeffrey, right. both of which were quite isolating in the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. So this was an opportunity to be part of a team, a biz- the business end of things, and be part of that socialness of the restaurant business. Right. And so I just took the job, um, just diving in, not really knowing what I'd be doing. And I didn't know how it would lead me back to food writing or if it would lead me or what, how I would put it all together. But I just knew it was another layer to the puzzle that couldn't serve me wrong. 
if I had ju- if I just did it. And so mm. I did it. And I did all those things. And I believe that Danielle Ballou kind of gave me my MBA in the restaurant business because that was the first time I worked with a budget. It was the first time I had to understand how the business of restaurants worked. And that sort of helped to complete that puzzle. I knew how the food part worked. I knew how the writing part worked. But I had no idea how the business, the reality of restaurants and kitchens worked. The operating costs, the marketing, the public right. relations, the all of those intangibles that go into making a restaurant and then the restaurant industry on a greater scale successful. And that was such an eye-opening experience for me. And that really, I think was the amalgamating of all of these skills that led me back to the track inadvertently that I had originally been on, which right. is my next job after that was to work for Food Wine Magazine, where I could sort of put all of it together. Do, do you think it was important um, to just kind of have this really just broad, strong foundation, just where you understood kind of almost every aspect? Yeah. Because you had experience in it? Yeah. And I, and, and I feel and like... And to work for really amazing people. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, like some of like the best people around, right? Yeah, like I just, just were, I, from, I was lucky, but yeah. I also sought out and badgered mm-hmm. ad nauseum uh, the best people in the business, yeah. and finally they gave me jobs, and so I just I had experience from from really exceptional people, and I, that I think played a role. I feel like sometimes people just want like the end result, like they sometimes don't want to put in. <laughs> I just filled up myself. I'm not a very. I have a drinking. I don't know. I yeah. don't know what that was. What's that's like? What's the other movies like? Airplane? I have a drinking problem. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Like, um, you know, I think sometimes people just want the end result. They never. They don't want to like, you know, like fill out the body that you need to have. Like that sure. strong foundation. Do the work. Yeah. Just do the damn work. You know. I think. Our, I mean, this is gonna sound like I'm <laughs> my mother. <laughs> This generation. No, I think everyone wants the shortcut. Everyone wants to get to the good stuff. You know, in the restaurant industry, there's this constant conversation about finding good chefs, mm. finding good cooks, mm-hmm. because no one wants to be a cook anymore. Right. You want to be a chef. Right. And uh, I am partially to blame because I am on a reality television show that helps to glamorize the kitchen a little bit, I think. But at the same time, I think that Top Chef has really further the conversation about how hard that job really is and the reality of that job. And the interesting thing about the job is that no one on our show, I'm sort of jumping ahead, but no one on our show is an amateur. Every contestant on our show is at this point, especially going into our 14th season of our show. It's amazing. It kind of is. And no one on our show is is just like, I think I want to be a chef. I'm going to try it out and hopefully I can win Top Chef. It doesn't work that way. Everyone is at this point a chef and they've all actually been cooking, most of them for over a decade. And this is what they do every single day. And so we are are seeing that glamorized end result, but you can't fake it. You can't come on the show and fake it and just pretend you know how to cook and see if you can get that far. You will you will drown instantly. And there isn't a chef who comes off of the show, even if they've been cooking for 20 years, every single day of their lives and cooking their guts out, who doesn't come up to me at the end of the season and say, holy shit, that was hard. Right. Well, that's one of the things I love about Top Chef over all the, a lot of the other reality show competitions is that um, it seems that so many people seem to come off that show um, more so, like more people have more success Mm. from coming off that show more so than any other of the competition shows. And I think that, you know, that the reason of that is just speaks to what you just said to me. It's just, you know, kind of takes these people, even if they only make it to a couple of rounds, it gives them like this exposure where they still have the, they still have the skills, like they're ready to do it. 
I, I think with that a lot, it didn't come into focus until the last few years because for several years there were so many reality competition mm-hmm. shows and now there's fewer. Right. They've sort of, this, the fat has been skimmed, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the there was genre. A lot. There was I know. A lot. There were moments of haircutting shows and yeah. <laughs> and dressing show. I don't know, you know, a lot of shows. There was a, I remember there was like a <clears throat> filmmaker show. There was like a who wants to be oh. the next top well, there's, director. There's you still know, Project so like, Greenlight, which came back. Yeah. Right? yeah different, yeah, that's but a still. Different. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, the the thing I think that Top Chef has the exercise that I think has been so successful about Top Chef is it was hard to gauge for the first few years if we were doing what we were setting out to do, which mm. was finding this raw, young talent, the next generation of great chefs in this country and giving them a platform where they could really then dive off and do something exceptional with. And it takes many years to open a restaurant. So the first couple of seasons, it was hard to gauge because they then were going off and trying to open their restaurants. But now a decade, over a decade later, we're going into 11 years of making Top Chef and 11 years later, I, I don't even know the count, but there's something like 150 restaurants across the country that have opened in the last decade because they have been from Top Chef contestants. That's so cool. That's so cool. And not only are they restaurants, they are award-winning restaurants. Right. These are chefs who are winning Food & Wine Best New Chef, James Beard Award nominations and wins. Um, they are all going off and making their own television shows, making their own empires, yeah. essentially, writing exceptional books and just building great creative brands and uh, not 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 flashes in the pan, so right. to speak, at all. Some of our chefs, I'm just so proud of so many of them, from the bigger, you know, more well-known winners to some of the guys who are a little bit quieter but just are opening awesome restaurants, you know, or off, awesome companies a little bit off the grid and just being really successful at what they do. And I don't think there's actually any reality show in any genre, not even American Idol or X Factor or um, the, the Voice yeah. or Project Runway. And they're all excellent shows that are showing really talented people doing what they do best. But I just don't think any of them have had the long-term financial and economic right. success even American Idol. I mean, yes, there's Jennifer Hudson and Kelly Clarkson and, you know, Miranda Lampert. There's a, couple, a handful. A handful, but like out of how many seasons, right? right? Like, I mean, like Top Chef, like you just, you know, there's But just, it's also a different margin, I think, for entry. Course. Opening a restaurant and selling or getting records, a record yeah, 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 label yeah. is a different situation. But still, I think that this is, I'm going to make a very bold statement, but I think <laughs> Top Chef has changed the economy of restaurants in America. I completely like, agree. Like at, at a financial, agree. at an economic yeah. level, I think it's really interesting. And that's really cool to be a part of that. Yeah, you know? we're very proud. I, I say that because I'm in awe of it, not because I feel <laughs> no. like I am uh, responsible for it. Right. Well, what, what are the things that you still find that inspire you and excite you? With Top Chef uh, yeah, and with, just with, uh, everything with everything in general. I mean, you know? I, there's what are the things lot. that still get you really excited? Traveling to a new city really excites yeah. me. Um, arming myself with a list of things to do and places to go and eat and then finding 50 other places that I hadn't expected yeah. and ingredients and combinations and walking into the Top Chef kitchen every season at the start of a season and staring at 15, 18 new faces who are totally petrified yeah. um, and intimidated by us and finishing that season knowing how much beautiful food they've made for us and the fact that they even accomplish and put something on our plates at the end of every day I think is amazing um yeah there's I mean there's a lot about being on the show that still inspires me there's just I don't know a lot about the food industry that still inspires me the great thing about the food industry is that 
you eat a really amazing meal and then five hours later you have to do it again. (laughs) And so there's just endless opportunity for exploration. I know. I I completely get that. Um, What have been the tough moments for you, you know, over the, over your career? (laughs) Uh, There's been many. Wow. I think that the the best and worst part of my job right now, Mm -hmm. which is sort of a different angle to the question, is that I do travel a lot Mm -hmm. and travel while thrilling and exciting and inspiring and is so much a part of what I do also is the hardest part of what I do because it means being away from my life and my life has changed over Mm -hmm. the last 20 years. Um, It used to be that travel was no big thing except that it was exhausting at times. But now I have a family, I have a child and I take her with me when I can, but there's just a constant juggle of priorities and responsibilities that has changed and uh, being away from my life is harder than it used to be. Um, Maintaining those relationships and, and keeping them balanced and strong and not stressed out (laughs) is really important. Um, And also finding, finding ways of staying new and, and, and relevant. Yeah. I think in the world we live in that moves so quickly and, and media moves so quickly and the food industry is moving so quickly and I'm sort of the crossroads of the two. So what, where am I going Right, like Top how, Chef. Yeah, how do you feel that things are changing? You know, in a, in an instant, in the blink of an eye, we went from being the new kind of hot, crazy format in the world that was groundbreaking to being the godfather yeah. of the, the industry. Inst- yeah, the institution. You know, the yeah. and now we're the institution. So, and there's so many new exciting things that I'm thrilled to see come up and change that. And so how do you stay relevant with that and keep up with that but yeah. also not feel like you're trying to keep up all you're the like time. you're trying too hard you're right. still staying true to yourself yeah yeah and doing things that you want to do and make decisions to create quality projects mm. and work with good people you know saying no is really hard too yeah as you can do a million things and that isn't necessarily a great value of your time well that's the thing with like this, the, the gig economy too because i face this all the time right you say no and you're like nobody's ever going to call me ever again Mm-hmm. If I don't say yes to everything, Feast or I'm famine. never going to get something else, you know? I remember being given that piece of advice a long time ago. Someone I worked with, still work with very closely, um, told me that I'm going to learn to say no more than I say yes. Yeah. And I did not understand a word of that. Uh-huh. I thought he was ridiculous. Why would I ever say no to things? Why would I turn down money? Why would I turn down opportunity? Why would I turn down free stuff? Well, I don't yeah, know. I mean, you're, and it's all, all stuff things. when you're working within a zone that you love everything about it, it's so hard to say no yeah. to because it's like you love to do it. But you know? saying no, there's power in saying yeah. no when you say no to the right things. Um, learning also that not everyone's going to like you. I'm a people pleaser and I find it really, really hard to say no because I want to please everybody and I want to do everything, but there aren't enough hours in the day and my daughter's bedtime is more important than the opening of that restaurant <laughs> right. sometimes right. to me in my life in this moment or whenever it is. And, um, you, or just that it's that whatever is being offered does not benefit me and, and learning to be okay with sounding like there has to be something in it for me right. and being okay with that. Even if people aren't okay with that, people aren't always going to like you or, or agree with you. That's really, really hard for me. Well, that comes with like experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, uh, you know, what are your hopes for how things go? Like, mm. where do you want to, what do you want to do next? Like, what do you want to? Huh. 
I want to, what do I want to do next? I want to do a lot of things that I haven't done. I mean, I want to just keep making really great media, whether that's television or online or with Food Mind Magazine, yeah. where I still have a home. Yeah, um, that's so cool that you've been able to work with yeah. them and do Top Show. You know, we've we've really grown up together with it. They gave me the opportunity at the beginning. It was Food and Wine who kind of threw me out to the sharks yeah. and said, go make the show for us. Go get out there. And, you know, 11 <laughs> years later, we're still making it together. That's great. You know, our relationship has changed and I don't work with them. I, don't, I, I had two jobs for a while. I was doing my full-time day job with them and then I was doing Top Chef on the side and that didn't end up being sustainable. Mm. So we have altered my job with Food & Wine, but I still work with them in a lot of different ways and do a lot of great work with them. And I still love the brand and it's evolving right now too. So that's exciting. Um, so I, I just want to continue working with really great young chefs and young talent. Um, I really like the feed. Uh, yeah. Oh, thanks. We uh, tried really hard with the feed. We loved the feed. It, the feed was a show I made with Marcus Samuelson two years ago. I've shot with Max a couple of oh, times. Max and uh, I remember he was literally like, he top was like, five people in the world. Yeah, he's great. Um, yeah, it was great, man. It was, you know, it didn't turn out exactly, I have to say, as we had thought it would be. The show that we set out to make was not the show that aired. Yeah. Um, that happens. It happens all the time. That was a great lesson. That was a huge lesson. I'm actually giving a talk next week about the worst biggest lesson I learned and, and I think that the feed is going to be it because it was such a great lesson in retrospect hindsight you know it's easy to just laugh about it now there were so many moments making the feed that were so extraordinary and so much fun but there were so many missteps along the way and and I wish that we had done things differently all of us but you, you know, take all that knowledge you take the it next thing, and here you we know? are yeah, yeah. right so um you know, it was it was trying to stretch out of out of the boundaries of I think how people see me uh, on Top Chef. It's a very curated version of me, mm-hmm. and that's what people know me from the most. And I'm proud of that. And that's me. I said all those things. I yeah. did all those things. <laughs> um, but I don't always wear a cocktail dress with a full face of makeup and sit behind a desk judging people. It's just not what I do all the time. Right. But like also like I mean, there's got to be those moments where like they take your reactions from other things and edit them into other parts. Well, it's not so much edited into other parts. It's I know just, other shows do yes, that all the time. You know, it I is can tell, definitely, like, you know. yes, it's curated. Yeah. It is edited. It yeah. is edited because we shoot. It's got to be. We shoot for every episode. We shoot probably 60 hours on eight cameras <laughs> straight of footage. And it goes into 44 minutes of television. Yeah. And that's, and that's not news. This is not, that's how television's made. That's how all television is made. Right. Especially reality television. Because it still needs to be interesting. And if it was just exactly how it happened, it really would be boring and you'd all turn off the television. But the television we're making that is relevant to this moment in what we are setting out to do, Top Chef needs to be made a certain way for it to be successful and for it to be viable. Because, by the way, it's also a business. (laughs) Television is a business. It's an industry. It's called show business, not show friends. That's exactly right. So you need, you know, so so there's a lot of reasons we do we make the show the way we make it, and every television show is made the way yeah. you make it. You like to think that every restaurant is run just for the whim and fancy of its customers, but it's not. No, restaurants are businesses too. Yeah, and so and magazines are businesses too, and um, so you know, there, t- Top Chef, I, I think for all for all that needs to be done to make it interesting and fun and relevant, I actually think that of any show, we really pride ourselves on making it a true depiction of restaurant life, right. of chef life. I'm not saying that chefs cook out of vending machines, 
for restaurants, but it puts you in the headspace of how to think on your feet, right. sense of urgency, being spontaneous, thinking and, and working improvisationally with food. And what do you do when you're when your ingredients show up and they're not good or, or your sous chef calls in sick one day and you still have the show to put on every right. night. And, and so that is sort of what we set out to do with chef. Mm-hmm. We do it at the highest quality with the greatest young chefs in this country. And I think our production company has been amazing about staying true to that. We also have Tom Colicchio as our taskmaster. Right. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, he is my big brother, my guru, my mentor in, in so many things. And he has really helped to steer that ship and keep us on the straight and narrow, which I'm so grateful for. Yeah. Can I, can I, and uh, I just want to ask one like Star Trek convention Do question. It. Like, yeah, I'm uh, in it. In episode so and so. Okay, so the big, okay, so this is the thing. So when you get the, is there like sometimes like when you're waiting to get somebody's food, like where it comes to you and it's cold? And like, Excellent how do you question, deal with that? Jay. And then my other question is, you know, when they do like the hero shot of the dish, so like, are I'm they making? I'm gonna explain it all. Are they making another dish for just I, the yes. hero shot, like while you're doing? You know. So there's two pieces, okay. and these are <laughs> so these are really right excellent now. questions. These are really these. This is the the nitty gritty of of production. Yeah. And it took many seasons for us to figure <laughs> this out. And thank God for our AD team, our assistant director, and his team. Um, we have had basically two assistant directors through the duration of Top Chef and the first one set in play and he was a brilliant man set in play some systems and then our second AD team really perfected them but it occurred to us after the finale of our very first season we did our first season in San Francisco the finale was Tiffany versus Harold in Mm. Las Vegas and Tiffany's dishes came cold and she lost. I'm not saying she would have won if they had been hot. Right. But she lost for various reasons. And only afterwards, we found out that her food had sat at the pass for an inordinate amount of time because of production. Because right. production needs to stop. And it was at that moment that we sat down with our production team and Tom. and We didn't. Tom and the production team sat down and made a pact that food cannot sit we will not wait for food on this show Mm. it needs to be served hot it needs to be served when we say 45 minutes they get 45 minutes and then the food is served and Padma will tell you and we will tell you and our executive producer will tell you it doesn't matter if my lipstick's not on it doesn't matter if it's go time my dress is not done (laughs) up right it's go time we are we we have that timer that is set and we know that that includes us that we need to be ready and we we calculate everything from those moments so and we also aren't going to penalize them because of things out of their control. Right. So when something, when there is a blip in production, we know about it and we take it into consideration and we don't penalize them. But more often than not, our AD is breathing fire down our backs to make sure that we are at the table and ready to go because that food is coming out whether we're ready or not. Yeah. And it needs to be served so that we can respect the chefs and their vision and what they are doing so that we eat it the way it's meant to be served. So that's part A of your question. Yeah. And part B is <laughs> whenever... It is said, and this also took a couple seasons to figure out the system for, whenever we say, whenever Padma says to the chefs, you're going to be serving for 10 people, you're going to be cooking for 10 people, so you need to make 10 dishes, they make 11. Right. What happens in that moment is when she says, you know, one, two, three, go, or whatever she says, right. what does she say? There's uh, a line. Uh, um, oh, yeah, yeah. I, she says, <laughs> <laughs> what does she say? <laughs> Like chefs, start, start start your... Your time starts now. Your time starts now. Wow, you think I (laughs) haven't seen the show before. When she says your time starts now and you see them just run into the kitchen and go grab ingredients, they actually say, okay, stop everyone. 
and they take them back for uh, to read rules because they need to read the rules legally of the exact details, point by point, of what the rules are to that mm. to that um, specific challenge. And there's always a, okay, you, you're going to be serving for 10 guests. You always make one more plate, always. Whether it's for a quick fire or for an elimination, they always make an extra beauty plate so that when they lie out 10 plates for service, there's actually an 11th plate that gets whisked off by our culinary team. And then you have a separate crew. For food porn. Sec- yeah. We have something called food porn, right. which is the little section behind the, behind the scenes where there's a camera guy and a crew set up and a producer, and they do that beauty shot so that they're getting a a beautiful shot of that food it's only fair because again if we wait around and sit or we took one of the dishes that needs to be eaten then eat it later it would not be the same and we realize that food is delicate perishable time sensitive needs to be eaten in the moment amazing this is such a beautiful way to start the week this weather and then just having this information there you go so happy the Uh, mysteries of the universe (laughs) have now been revealed to you jay yeah gail simmons thank you so much it was a pleasure thanks thanks a lot